Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Caravan Podcast, a show about Pakistan's startup ecosystem where we have intimate conversations with founders and investors driven to catapult Pakistan into the digital age. We'll discuss what it's really like to start a business, the highs and the lows, the setbacks, the comebacks, the lessons, everything. I'm your host, as always, Ahmad Mia, partner at Caravan, a community-driven venture capital platform. Now, given the nascent ecosystem, there's a massive spread between the talent in the country and the resources that are available to support them. Our mission at Caravan is to close that gap by providing both capital and expertise at the earliest of stages. You can find more information about Caravan at www.caravan.vc. In this episode, I sit down with Usman Sheikh, the founder of High Output Ventures, an accelerator focused on building the next generation of Pakistani startups. So without further ado, let's get straight to Usman. Yeah, so it's been a, a considerable long time coming. Uh, I set up my first company in 2003. So it's coming close to 17 years. Yeah. And uh, it's been, a, we started off in the, the marketing sort of like space. It was just in school and we set up our first company. In fact, it's really interesting. The first company that we set up, the co-founder in that company, we actually like maybe 12 years later, we did another company in our portfolio right now called Read Screener. Nice. So it's cool how all of these things, the, the, the things tie up. So in, I graduated 2005 from university. And uh, during that time, I had set up a, a company in school already. And we were helping students from around the region to discover Singapore. At that point, Singapore was not still what Singapore is today. Okay. A lot of people were still going to the West. Not so much was known about like what's happening in the East. I remember when I joined NUS, uh, there were something like 30 odd Pakistanis in a 30,000 uh, populous school. Oh. And uh, I've recently heard that the Pakistani numbers have eclipsed 400, 500 at NUS nice. itself. So it's been great to see. And uh, then we just started with that. And it was an education tourism sort of like company, helping with my partners for Vietnamese uh, students or Malaysian students to discover Singapore. We, we did that. And then in the middle, I always had wanted to come back to Pakistan. In 2007 and 8, uh, we actually started a company based out of Pakistan called Innovo, which was supposed to help companies with their HR processes. Basically, I have a psychology background and I wanted to bring psychometric assessments to the country in 2007. It was way, way too early because most conversations were like, what is psychometrics when you would go in? And uh, it was too early for that. In 2008, I went back to Singapore and we started this company called Hatch Media. Okay. And that was an outdoor advertising based company where we were providing real estate for advertisers who wanted to target the 18 to 24 demographics. So we would buy spots within universities and schools, et cetera, and then package them up and resell them back to the media agencies. Uh, that company got acquired by Philippines largest advertising agency in 2011. 
And uh, around this time, I started to get a lot of things at the agency, which was like, can you build us a microsite? Can you do this? What's this Facebook and advertising? And, this you is know, that the, the, the inherent kind of increase and in, in kind of bigger companies wanting to get into the digital media space. Yeah, and back in those days, life was easy. You would package up all of this real estate, you would sell it to the media agencies, which would then sell it back to the so things, and they would plaster ads out. And suddenly they were like, can you put a QR code or could you put an SMS and what's a microsite? And at this, at, till this point, I hadn't really done tech tech as a business just yet. Yeah. And uh, so that's when I, well, basically what had also happened in Singapore was a lot of my friends had started tech companies as well, because in 2008, around that period, what Singapore started to do was that they said that we're going to become the entrepreneurship hub for the region and the government allocated somewhere around the 300, 500 million dollars where they're like, all right, we're just going to give this to people. And uh, they started writing $50,000 checks at a very, very fast pace. Basically, they were like, instead of getting a job when you graduate from school, take this money and try to create a company. And uh, a majority of those companies fail, but some of those companies today, like Money Smart and stuff like that, that are very large companies today, were, came out of those sort of like programs right in the early days. And uh, that's when the government also started to bring programs like Founder Institute, et cetera, to the city. And in those days, like, you know, the Phil Libin from Evernote and all of these guys would be flown in by the Singapore government. To so it really showcases that they were trying to kind of get that ecosystem going. Yeah. Know? And it was great. I remember Adeo Rezi, the, the founder of Founder Institute, also used to come a lot to Singapore and connect us with his ecosystem. And that's when I really got into tech with a company called Identify. And Identify started off with we want to help people graduating from universities to make better career decisions. And uh, along the way, we realized that the business model around that wasn't too sound because a lot of companies have management training programs. And so they would, and the differential between graduates at that early undergrad state is like, you know, you differentiate between extracurriculars or stuff like that, because once your grade points get to a certain average, it's sort of like, balances out. During that time, we sort of like pivoted into the performance management space for Identify, which is basically we started going to large companies like Novartis. And I still have a background in HR and psychology a bit. And so we started to sell them our system, which had a surveying software built into it. And it turned into performance management software uh, because that's what performance management really is you send out surveys to thousands of people you tabulate all the data and then you bring yeah. that all together and serve insights from you. and uh we were lucky at that point we got novartis telenor uh bp gsk a lot of large companies started to come in and we started to really get into the space of large salesforce driven organizations which had a dispersed a group of employees. How can we bring all that data in and clean that data and sort of like showcase that data across so that training and all of these other things can be done, uh, decisions can be made. And Identify then practically took up most of my time till around 2015, uh, 16, when uh, in 15, I got into a new project, which was a crypto related project uh, for basically when Ethereum was just getting started. And uh, someone 
in my network wanted me to help them sort of like build a high frequency trading bot uh, with them as well. And so I remember buying Ethereum at like three bucks a piece wow. and, you know, uh, in those sort of like early days. And it was crazy because 2015 stuff was still sort of like coming together, 16, little more hype. And then 17, everything went bazonkers. And, uh, and yeah, that period was just in that thing. Identify had these long-term contracts. When you sell a contract with a performance management, it's usually a year long and it's per employee per year. How are, you are getting, how are you selling these contracts? It's, um, it's an enterprise sale. So it's a consultative sale that I would do. I would go, I would speak to my contacts. I would nurture the contracts and sort of like eventually sell them. Was it ever difficult to kind of um, get people to understand what it was that you were selling? Like, was it hard to convince people of your idea at all? In, in Pakistan, for sure. I remember the early people who took bets on us uh, were Telenor in Pakistan. And um, yeah, the, I was very lucky, Faham and stuff like that, who I think heads up HR for Coke now. Uh, they had the foresight to do that. But in Pakistan, it was hard. In Singapore, it was a lot easier because we would compete against Tower Watson and all of the other HR consultancies where there was a price arbitrage that was available for Identify to take advantage of. Yeah. Enterprise sales are always difficult. Uh, an average sale used to take anywhere between six to 12 months because yeah. you were have pilots to run and you have to like create reports and there was a bit of customization that needed to be done. So, so yeah, I've spent like close to, you know, since 2005, I've been selling to enterprises. So after that point, you know, I sort of like got the, the idea as to how to find the point person, how to do that, how to structure the proposals, how to get pilots through. That's, that's the learning, right? Like, especially like B2B and enterprise. I mean, the, the, the signing of the contract, like you said, takes six to 12 months, but the ability to kind of drive that and make sure that you're, you're getting to the right person and you're making those kind of, uh, those touch points with each person, either on LinkedIn or, or recurring kind of emails. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a process, right? Yeah. And I see so many, I made the same mistakes. I made all the mistakes, right? Underpricing, sort of like giving too much away in the pilot, sort of like not incorporating enough people in the deal, just trying to sell to one person, not understanding who, the, because for HR software, and this is the learning. So anyone who is listening, who's selling HR software, I mean, the head of HR uh, can get the person in and the people in, but there's usually a business objective linked to that software, whether it's allocating training budgets or getting sales efficiency up or creating more transparency within the organization. There's usually something there. And so the mistake is only selling to HR, you probably, and I did that for so long. And then we figured out, at least in our space, where we were selling to organizations which had very large sales forces and getting to the head of sales and showcasing what he could do with or she could do with our data was the thing which made a lot of deals suddenly click. And I think that could shortcut anyone a couple of years selling enterprise software in the HR space uh, because you keep going to HR and unfortunately they don't have those discretionary budgets to purchase software like that. And, uh, but yeah, Enterprise software still fascinates me. Uh, it's still something that uh, I've now moved more towards like uh, SaaS uh, versus thing. I still like bottom-up approaches. I think the top is becoming extremely competitive 
because companies like Salesforce, Workday, everyone who's at the top now is also thinking bottoms up. So they are becoming much smarter. Um, so it takes a lot to sell from the, the top. I feel like the opportunities now are from bottom up. So if we, take, if we step aside from, from this part of the journey of, of, of yours, I'd be curious to kind of learn as you're building these companies up and you're getting these teams together, like right. being remote has been a part of your structure for a very, very long time, right? How did you kind of structure the startups that you were working on and the companies that you were building and the sales team that you were building to, right. to kind of get you to today with HOV where a lot of the stuff that you're doing is still very remote, right? Right. I think it started off, I think once we started Identify and Chatsip, my co-founder was in Pakistan and Chatsip today runs intern start PK. And uh, he was in Pakistan, I was in Singapore. And we always just started off with this default sort of like, all right. And then we hired teams in Singapore to facilitate that. But we always had engineering perhaps in Pakistan where, you know, he was there. And so we we became very, very comfortable. Like before Slack, there was HipChat and there was all of these other things. We've been using these tools since 2012. And uh, so, so that was the, the, the first part that a lot of our teams just started to be based uh, there. We would have offices in Singapore and then slowly even that sort of like broke apart whereby everyone is remote today. But it started off with tech being separated out from Singapore. And has it been, I mean, what's the evolution been? I mean, and, and especially now with COVID and the way people are kind of working and everyone's kind of on that work from home movement, has it been difficult right. to kind of get the right people vested in the company and, and being able to, I mean, you said that you right. have background in HR as well, getting the right kind of people and the right kind of mindset when it's a yeah. company that's so segmented from, from Singapore and, and in Pakistan with the back office being in Pakistan? Yeah. Um... I think the biggest, so I had a bunch of learnings where it's scaling the advertising company and generally companies in the middle whereby we would hire people without really incorporating their core set of values, like who were they and what drove them versus their skills. It's like this person can do sales. He or she is very good at it. Let's hire them. And there was always, I found many times a values conflict. Uh, because I think core values are something at core to every one of us. You have yours, I have mine, and it shapes the way that we look at the world. When, when a, an entire company is not built around a sense of core shared values, where I'm not saying that everyone needs to sort of like believe in them completely, but it's not like at our company, one of our core values is uh, earning machines. And on the surface, everyone would be like, of course, I love learning and I love growing, but there is a very big disconnect between what is the last book that you read? Yeah. What is the last thing yeah. that you wrote and stuff like that? And it's not necessary. So I think that was the biggest shift that we've done with HOV versus all the others that values are at the heart of the thing. And I think internal NPS scores, engagement scores, everything is so much better at HOV than any of the other companies that I've uh, built over the last couple of years. And I think that has been something which I wish that more founders would sort of like look through because when you're starting up a company, the founder's core values really are the company's core values. 100%. Because that is the person who is pushing everything. 
Unfortunately, when you look at how you hire people, then that's not where that comes in because then we hire for skills and there's an attitude sort of like checkbox. Does this person have a right attitude? But attitude doesn't really, and people are very good at creating certain impressions during interview periods and then they're very different. And the next week they're completely different. And uh, I think as part of our core values and one of our other values is we have each other's back. And I think it's critical in the times of remote work as we are right now. If you can't sort of like depend on the person who is on your team to, to be there for you, then I think remote work becomes incredibly difficult uh, to pull off. So I think values for sure, having a shared sense of values and then communications. Communications is, is at the heart of the company. I've written a memo for the last three, four years to the entire company on Sunday. And uh, it just goes out. I create videos every Friday for the company. We yes. have town halls. And uh, so it takes a lot of effort. And most CEOs, back in the day, I would be like, why waste time with this? You could close a deal or you could be doing something else. And as a company scales past, like the, I think five, 10 people, all right, you're still a very close group. But if you're remote, you really need to pay attention to this. Um, but as you start scaling 15, uh, 30, 50, 75, 100, uh, yeah, then you're, <laughs> I've paid the price before, so I, I know what happened. <laughs> these, are, these are the valuable learnings that come out of this. So tell us a little bit about HOV. I mean, you've been active with HOV for some time, and now you're kind of coming into Pakistan. Um, tell us a little bit about the program and what you have structured and, and what your vision is with that. Right. So I've been actively looking at Pakistan for the last 10 years when I said that first sort of like uh, experiments in 2007 and uh, Farzal who's been on the podcast and a lot of other people, we were all there in the beginning and we thought that maybe in the early tens, we'll sort of like start to see Pakistan tick up. And uh, Farzal who started the the first sort of like uh, co-working spaces and all of this. So we were seeing this all around us. Unfortunately, I think what happened was that there, there was A, not enough, capital and then the talent wasn't coming back at the rate that it has been coming back now and it's uh technology Pakistan's core tech talent is now being recognized as well as something that was again you know back in those days you could still diversify but a lot of countries and we have people across Southeast Asia uh, in our development capacities and salaries are up wages are up and uh, I think that sort of like played a role. And uh, so last year for Startup Grind and for uh, Disrupt and all of these things, like I was here and compared to all the other events, there was far more fanfare. There were a lot more announcements. There were a lot more investment announcements that were being made. And I think that's what sort of like triggered the fact that how can we sort of like get into Pakistan? Uh, HOV as a business has sort of like three main sort of like tenants, which is, uh, you know, what we started off with is co-founding. Essentially, it's a, still a venture builder sort of like a deal where we partner with a domain expert and we build a business together by providing capital plus everything else. And uh, Read Screener is an example of this sort of like business. I don't think that Pakistan is ready for that just yet. Um, I think we decided to choose the accelerator path for Pakistan because in our early sort of like 
interactions, what we saw were a lot of entrepreneurs who were onto something. Unfortunately, they were still too stuck in the weeds to sort of differentiate. And as a result of that, they were not being able to raise the capital that they should be able to raise. And uh, so the HRV Accelerate program is really for companies, not for like the super early companies that have just started, but rather for someone who's been at the business for some time, but they might be stuck. And uh, we're looking for those things whereby there is that differential between where they could be and where they are right now. And it's not a large gap to think, to fix. And what HRB brings with it is given that we have a sizable team from everything from product design, engineering, HR, legal, uh, finance, all the teams are internal and they have already run businesses that have already scaled or they have been part of these. So they can bring all of these insights immediately to the companies that will be part of the Accelerate program. And as a result of that, we should start to see um, growth of these companies much faster. And that's what we're really going with. We are also sort of like tying that with a $50,000 investment into each one of the companies that we're going to be making. I consider the first two cohorts that we have committed to as really like in my head, like a call option on Pakistan's uh, growing technology uh, sector. Uh, I still don't think that, I don't know whether we're there yet for a very large fund, perhaps we are, but I think that there's a lot more opportunity. And what I'm seeing right now is a rejig of maybe 2008, 9, 10, Singapore, and then Indonesia and all of that that was happening. There, the East Ventures and everyone were writing the 25, $50,000 checks. Yeah. I think giving an entrepreneur a lot of money requires the entrepreneur to have an idea as to how to use that money as well, right? And I think Which, that's yeah. the, the, the biggest thing. And we still don't, quite a lot, a lot of the times, you don't see that clarity of vision of, of where that capital is going to go. Um, some haven't even structured their company. So I, I really think that this, this is something that people definitely need in Pakistan, where there are people who are running businesses, but they don't have that clarity of how to actually structure it with ESOPs, with um, the legal elements of it, or um, just how to grow. So I think where you're coming in, I'd actually be curious to kind of know what are some of the KPIs that you look for in a, in a business that you, that you would want to accept into the Accelerate program? What are some of the, the prerequisites? Yeah, I think uh, the first up would be that the, the business probably should be in operation for at least one or two years whereby the founders have put together or have shown the ability to at least put together a small group of people who have come together to find the early sort of, they may not have perfect product market fit right now, but they have something which is past the, the initial stage. Uh, they probably haven't raised a large amount of money, but you know, we're looking at companies that have raised in the past 50, 100, 200K, but are still stuck. And I still think those are good companies to be part of the accelerator program, because if you haven't, because most of the time funding is given to our companies to discover things that they don't know. And so between one funding cycle to another funding cycle, the next investor should be like, what did you learn with the money that you got last time? And a lot of the time, unfortunately, there are not a lot of learnings where the companies get stuck. And uh, so what we're looking for is companies who are have something it's undervalued. And uh, then we're also looking at generally the attraction that they, they have in sense of 
early customers, what sort of like feedback are the customers giving them with their early users? So we're looking at very early sort of like touch points. I'm not so worried about like, is the company making a lot of revenue or hopefully they're not losing a lot of money. Uh, but I think those are some of the just core early stage characteristics on, you know, what does retention really look like? Are there some sort of like customers that are really hanging on to these things? Is there a sort of like some sort of like maybe engineering sense that has gone into the, the product side of things? We're just looking like, because we're not there to build a business for the founder. Uh, we're just there. Does the founder have the capability with a little bit of support within four to five months to really accelerate their business? And I think with the shared expertise of everyone on the HOV team and with capital available, I'm hoping that the companies that come in will be able to do that. And so that's the sweet spot. We're actually sector agnostic as well. So we're not looking at any sort of like A1 sector to, to put all the companies in as well. And uh, so that provides us with a broader base as well to, to look into. And those are some of the heuristics that we're looking at. Awesome. So yes, tell me a little bit about the most difficult and the most rewarding part or period of your journey so far and building all of these companies and starting HOV and, and what you're excited about. I think the, the rewarding part of the companies has been that people who were with us in prior companies and uh, a lot of them have gone on to start up their own companies and CEOs of their own companies. And that really excites me a lot where someone sort of like learns this and sort of like says, hey, here are some ways of how to do this. And then they go out and they create their own companies. And uh, uh, when you look at uh, the, the vision for whether it was Identify or HOV, it's still, I think that we spent such a large amount of time working. And if people could go back home every single day feeling like they've contributed to something bigger with a team that sort of like works well, I think that's like winning as far as I'm concerned. So I think I've seen that happen with several of the people who have worked with us. And I think that's probably one of the most rewarding things that we've seen. I think the... The challenges are like, you know, a never ending list of things that uh, we've had to overcome to, to get over here. Everything from, I, I've experienced term sheets being pulled up to the last sort of like moments and sort of like putting all sort of my eggs in one basket only to get like a investor ghost on me or to do some shady sort of like things. Uh, Co-founder conflicts where, you know, we didn't agree on certain things very early on. And then later on in the journey where things become hard, that's where this gets tested. So I think those are some of the, the, the lessons where, you know, we're very, even with the companies coming in, how do the co-founders sort of like get along with each other? When we talk to them about their core values, are they in sync or are they not in sync? And uh, I think those things have really been some of the challenges that we've overcome because I think a lot of the time I would build a, in the past, I would build very mercenary driven teams whereby mm -hmm. the goal was to get that enterprise contract, close it at all costs and get it done. I don't think those companies have the longevity of companies which are built with solid bases. And, uh, but I faced those challenges before. And um, I think those are some of the core things to just stand out for me. Uh, I'd, I have two more questions. Oh, two more questions. One, I'd love to kind of, uh, get your your opinion on not your opinion but your like what your what what can people expect 
um, in the HOV Accelerate program in the four to five months, what are you gonna be working with them on? Um, and then after that, the final question would be if you could describe three of the most important lessons that you've learned in your personal journey so far. Right. Okay, so what can you expect if you join the HOV program? I think every company coming into the program is probably going to have diagnostics that are going to be run on it. So domain experts from HOV will probably, and within HOV and external mentors that we've engaged will come in and break down the business into multiple silos, whether house product, engineering, marketing, branding, design, everything would be done. Finance would be given. We have an internal audit, which gets done. We've already selected these companies. So basically we like them enough and now they will get deep dives on each one of these areas. In where are those early wins where, you know, there are several things like using the 80-20 principle, those 20% of those levers, which are going to get the top line metrics that we want to track to grow. So I think that's going to happen initially. Then there's going to be a plan set out for them over the course of the next four to five months in order to improve those metrics. And they will work closely with the domain experts and the team at HOV and mentors to, to fix that. So it's not going to be a lot of like, this week we are going to be talking about XYZ topic and you, know, you get someone to come in because I believe a lot of the material is already online if you wanna to listen to lectures. I think what is missing is very business specific information that entrepreneurs need. And I think that's what they can look out for within the program, interacting with people who have already grown sizable sort of like businesses and have exited them. And to have that, because at the heart of it, we're entrepreneurs as well, right? Uh, HOV is basically a holding company with all of these tech companies within it. And I think it provide all of them with a massive sort of like edge to, to get that uh, versus a traditional sort of like investment. So that's probably... Awesome, dude. I'm excited to kind of see the companies that come out of it. I know that we've invested in one with you already, um, Baby right. Planet, and we're, we're excited to see how, how they kind of, uh, you know, grow in their baby and mom's e-commerce space. So right. last question. Um, if you could describe three of the most important lessons that you've learned in your journey. I think the, the first lesson that I've really learned is that businesses... Uh, need to be built from a set uh, the, where the business is going and the values that it's built on need to be defined and agreed upon much uh, begin at the beginning if possible or as early as possible. I think this is a mistake that I've also during this talk reiterated multiple yeah. times. Uh, and I think that a lot of people consider that to be, you know, so fluffy sort of like things that you got to do and Unfortunately, if you don't have the right sort of like uh, guidance early on, I think that's where someone could guide you as well. I think number two has been sort of like for people who, who support like entrepreneurs, I feel like for someone who's been doing this for a while now, uh, most of the time I did not, I discounted the fact that entrepreneurs themselves need support themselves. And that is through whether that be coaches or anything else, I think a lot of entrepreneurs really heavily discount the need for sort of like coaching. Um, it's something which has really, really helped me over the last couple of years as I've been working with coaches on several factors. Uh, we have so many blind spots. I have blind spots today that I need to work on. And uh, 
I realized that it may be out of reach for a lot of entrepreneurs that are starting out, but I feel like having and dedicating themselves to mentors, which are, are on the same page and want them to succeed is really important. And if you could set up sort of like a mutually coaching agreement with someone, I think that provides you with a mirror that is usually a lens that you don't get to see very often. Um, I think the last one, is always that I've tended over the last couple of years or since a while now to also focus on just continuous progress versus the, the high moments and things like that. So I think one of the things is that a lot of these businesses on the path of entrepreneurship is lots of tiny steps along the way. I think uh-huh. that you have to look at waves that come. So we talked about like, you know, when I, we saw like Facebook and all of the things rising in 2010, 11, in 16, 17, crypto. And right now I do see emerging markets and the remote thesis that we have as a whole. I think these are trends which entrepreneurs need to be very aware of. And a lot of the time we're very dogmatic as to a sector or something which we get. So I think just to end it, I feel like when entrepreneurs tie their identity with their businesses, which means my business is me and me, I am my business. That is a very dangerous sort of like path to go. And I've been down that path whereby when the business fails, you fail and it becomes very, very difficult to reconcile that. And uh, by separating these things out, And again, like, you know, having, you don't even need uh, coaches and you need like mastermind groups of entrepreneurs who can really come together and talk about these things. I think Pakistan has so much upside potential with all of the things that we're talking about uh, because all of this information is available. And now we're hoping that, you know, we get this into the local ecosystem and uh, yeah, inshallah. It's already off to a great start. So I think we're just a little... Thank you so much for listening. If you guys have any comments, your feedback, please do send them my way. My direct email address is amad at caravan.vc. Or you can get information on our website, which is www.caravan.vc or on Instagram. Um, our handle is at caravan.vc. Until next time, Khudafiz. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.